Hi, this is Michael Bell. Um, perhaps you remember me from my appearances on Deep Space Nine and uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, you're listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. As much as I love Star Trek, I think I might love cartoons and animation just a little bit more. If you don't believe me, check out my episode with Jason Marsden to hear me moments away from sobbing like a child to be speaking with someone who's been around in my life for so long without ever truly meeting them in person. I was born in the 80s, which was a real renaissance for animation, as well as tie-in merchandise, but that's a story for a different podcast. But I've got a lifetime of animation appreciation within me. So in this episode, I had the honor of chatting with a performer whose voice you've heard in over 300 cartoons, along with seeing his face in a bunch of things, including multiple episodes of Star Trek. And that performer is none other than Mr. Michael Bell. You'll know Michael's voice instantly if you ever watched nearly any cartoon from the 1970s through today, since he is still doing VO work now. He's worked for Hanna-Barbera, Disney, Warner Brothers, and every animation company in between. And you may remember a few of his roles, like Mark from Speed Buggy, Zan, one half of the Wonder Twins from the Super Friends, Plastic Man, Space Ace, a smorgasbord of Smurfs and Snorks, Duke, Clutch, and Major Blood from the original G.I. Joe series, Lance from the original Voltron, Prowl and Sideswipe on the Transformers, Quackerjack from Darkwing Duck, Raziel from the Soul Reaver video games, Chaz Finster on the Rugrats, General Dodonna from Star Wars Rebels, and so much more that I could spend hours just reading off every voice he did. And as it turns out, Michael also did three episodes of Star Trek, including the Next Generation pilot episode, Encounter at Farpoint as Grappler Zorn, Borum on the DS9 episode The Homecoming from Season 2, and Drofo Awa on the Maquis Part 2, also from Season 2. Michael also contributed to a bunch of Star Trek video games, including Starfleet Command, New Worlds, DS9 The Fallen, and Armada 2. In addition to his VO work, for quite some time now, Michael has also been teaching voiceover performing and gives us a few lessons that you up-and-comers are definitely going to want to hear. He has a lifetime of professional insight and great stories to tell, and I am so excited for you to check out this conversation with an absolute living legend in Mr. Michael Bell. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you about the different ways that you can support Trek Untold. If you're in a position to help us financially, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold where you can support us for as little as $2 a month. Joining at higher levels allows you to have early access to the latest episodes, knowing in advance who our guests will be before anybody else finds out, or even the chance to submit questions to some of those future guests, and maybe your question might be heard on that episode. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. But most importantly, I need you to leave a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to Trek Untold. Five-star ratings and positive reviews help this show pop up when new listeners search for Star Trek podcasts and make sure that they know they're listening to something that is worth their time. If you're watching this episode in video format on YouTube, please leave a thumbs up, share the video, and of course, comment there as well. Interacting on all these platforms is a guaranteed way to spread the word about Trek Untold. So if you've been a fan of this show, please do take action in whatever way you can and help make sure that Trek Untold can reach more listeners just like you who are going to love this type of content. 
And don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, which includes Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you need to do is type in at Trek Untold on any of those platforms, search for us that way, and you will find us just like that. You can also watch the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash nerdnews today. The video versions are released on Sundays, so the audio version will always come first, but if you prefer watching it, that's the way to do it. We also do a lot of other Trek-related content there, including toy and book reviews and plenty of other stuff, so you might want to take a look too, just so you can indulge and get yourself a new daily dose of Trek nerddom, however way you like to get it. Now, without further ado, let's bring in this week's guest and get this episode started. Computer, beam in this week's guest. And welcome back to Trek Untold, and we are now joined by a man whose voice you've heard throughout your childhood in literally hundreds of cartoons. I'm not going to name them all, because if we did that, we'd be here for like four hours just doing that. But he's Duke from G.I. Joe, he's Lance from Voltron, Quacker Jack from Darkwing Duck, and way too many Smurfs to name. Uh, and more importantly for me, even Opus from a Bloom County cartoon. So today... We have Michael Bell. He's here to talk on Trek Untold about Trek and everything else. Michael, I'm so excited yay. to have you here. Yay. <laughs> that is my reaction exactly, too. <laughs> it's playtime! Oh, yeah. I love that you got Quacker Jack right next to you also. Yeah. My buddy sleeps with me. <laughs> so, yeah, let's just go ahead and jump right on in here. And I'd love to ask you uh, the first question I asked all my guests. And that's, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Well, I can't recall other than, you know, being a sci-fi buff, you know, I just enjoyed watching it. And I remember for a period of time, it would be really fun to be on that show and all through the first segment of it, the first season and all the seasons with Shatner and that crew, I just never happened. I was busy working on camera, but I never got to do that show. And finally, years later, you did, but we're going to get to that in a little while. It's going to take some time for us to get down that road. Uh, but let's just start at the beginning of Michael Bell. And I'd love to find out where you were born, what your parents did for a living, and what you wanted to be when you grew up. Well, um, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, in Brighton Beach, Coney Island Hospital. I'm a Queens guy. Oh, you are? Okay. All right. Good. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've been to Queens. I mean, I ran through Queens. <laughs> I got in there and ran very fast. Um, my, my mom was a... Really bright, intuitive lady, but, you know, stuck during that period of time in the 30s, early 30s, having to work for a living, smart. She was a, a poet and an artist and all kinds of good stuff, but had to just work for a living. My dad, I don't know much about other than he just was a worker. You know, that was, we, it's not a showbiz family by any stretch. There was nobody in showbiz in my family. And I wanted to be an actor since I was, according to my mom, since I was five years old. She found me one day. I came home from the market because it was very cool in Brooklyn. I mean, you really it was so different than life now. You could go down the street when you were five, six years old, seven years old. Nobody bothered you. And uh, I came home and emptied my pocket and there were all these pennies. She said, where did you get that money? She thought I stole it. I said, I was singing down at the market and I used to sing down there for pennies. She said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And they, oh, my. She thought, oh, my God, you're, you're not. <laughs> I think we're destitute. But I just love the idea of performing. So, yeah, always all my life. So when did you discover acting? When did you discover that you can go on stage and do this kind of thing? Again, in my teens, early teens, um, went to a, there was a school called the McLevy School of Acting in Brooklyn. And then uh, got involved and I got a, um, a scholarship to uh, uh, the um, Erwin Piscotter, who trained uh, Brando and all those people, got a wow. scholarship. 
later on, and then uh, went to the high school of performing arts, where I uh, studied acting, dance, all that good stuff. Now, did you go to a university or college after to continue learning acting? My teacher told me I wasn't college material. It was really lousy academically. I mean, if put a mic in front of me, well, mic, not in those days, but put me on a stage and I was home. Uh, stick me in a math class and I was a far field. I didn't have a clue. And I, I didn't even graduate high school. They held me back. And one of the problems was that uh, it's probably in the internet somewhere. I was at a school dance at Performing Arts. My mom was there and we were in the lunchroom and it was a huge, big dance. And some guys came in, a bunch of guys came in from the east side and uh, raided us. And I wound up on the floor, uh, brass knuckles to my left eye, my nose, my head. And I wound up in the hospital and I couldn't catch up on my studies after that. So uh, I eventually went into the army and got my GED. So I didn't graduate with everybody else, but I got my diploma eventually. You got in a different way, though. And, uh, you know, thank you for your service as well. Yeah, um, thank you. So, yeah, once you dig it out, you got your GED. So then did you just go right into performing at that point? Yeah, I came back, uh, came back into town. Well, before I, before I got in the Army, um, I did a terrible film, <laughs> terrible film called Damaged Goods, where I got syphilis. Um, That's a whole story. A, about a kid that gets my breakthrough film. Peter gets it. I think I, I worked in Banning, California. I think for a hundred dollars a week and it was done on 16 millimeters become an underground, fascinating underground success over all these years. Um, and then uh, just before I went in the service, I got a, a local television show called the verdict is yours. And I begged to be held up. So they gave me the opportunity. I did verdict is yours and then boom, went right in the army. And I also did a movie before I went in the service called um, uh, war is hell. Um, I managed to get us an indie film, and that's the film that, of course, his name went to see before he, uh, right after he shot uh, our president Kennedy, and uh, it's in the it's in the congressional record. So I'm in the congressional record. It's called War Is Hell. If anybody wants to see it, it's a good film, it's a good war film. But uh, and that was it. And I went in the service and came out and fished around and just kept on kept on going and doing and going and doing until I finally connected. And I didn't connect uh, as an actor until I was well into my 30s. I mean, I was trying to do as much research as I could before this interview to kind of look up all of your live action work. Because again, I know you mainly as the voiceover guy, but yeah. you, know, you did so much more before then. And uh, I was actually really, really excited to find out you did an episode of The Monkees, uh, which was called <laughs> Art for Monkey's Sake. And you got to do a scene with Mickey Dolenz, which I saw. And it was really hilarious. I'd love to hear about your time working on The Monkees. Well, uh, I can say it now. Most of them are probably gone except for Mickey. Um, they were very un, unruly, very difficult to work with because they were making a lot of money for the producers. And no matter what they did, um, the producers would laugh and everybody would sit around and think yeah, that was so funny. And they were not funny at all. They were absolutely um, without any really great humor. They, they were a bunch of kids, you know, goofing up and thinking it was great to do fart jokes and stuff. And I really got angry at them because they weren't concentrating and they didn't screw, they screwed up on their lines left and right. So I had this scene where I have to jump on his back, I believe. And I did. And I reached down and I bit him in the ear and I held on while he screamed and tried to get me off. And then uh, after it was over, I think um, Rafelson, the producer, the director said, what was that all about? I said, well, I thought it worked for the character. You know, I, you know, and I just wanted to get even because there was such a pain in the ass. So I, I never thought I was doing anything iconic. I was just doing a show I was working. So all I was doing was working. And years later, 
did uh, Oliver Twist and the Artful Dodger for Hanna-Barbera. And I got the role of the Dodger, which was a singing role, and I don't sing. And I was up against uh, uh, Davy Jones, who is English, who does sing, and who was famous. And they picked me. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. I just love how so far we're like barely into this interview, and you've already talked about, you know, having a, some kind of a direct connection to being in Congress. And now you've got this party where you've taken a bite out of Mickey Dolan's. This is amazing already. This is, this is pure gold. <laughs> And I also saw that you did an episode of MASH, which I was also able to find called Souvenir, uh, where you played a junk dealer named Willie Stratton. And uh, you got to work with like the whole cast. I and mean, you got to work with Alan Alda. You got to work with Mike Farrell, Loretta, uh, Loretta Swift, uh, Jamie Farr. Uh, how did you enjoy your time on MASH? Really nice. And that was, a, that was a, again, another bonus. Um, uh, Herb Ellis was a wonderful radio actor and who I got to work with. We were very, very friendly. And he was out at a baseball game one day with the producer who was a major producer and the producer, they were just talking, they were old buddies. And he said, you know, I'm having a hard time finding leading men. We've just gone through everybody in this industry. And Herb said, well, what about Michael Bell? And he went, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that's good. And they sent me a script. I didn't have to read for it. They just hired me. And then the director, I'm sorry, bad with names. The director was his first time, the fellow who was directing was his first time directing and he was very excited. I had seen him when I was a kid in Brooklyn in a movie called City Across the River the Ambo- from the Amboy Dukes. And uh, he played crazy. And he was really good. He was really wonderful in that role with Tony Curtis and a whole bunch of really super actors. And it was a major film. And uh, now he was directing. And I went over and I told him, I said, I'd seen him do that role. And I was really thrilled with working with him. And he became very difficult to work with because... I was the only one he could direct. He couldn't direct anybody else because they all knew their characters. I was the new one. So when he came over, he said to me, okay, I need him to be bad. I mean, really bad. And I said, I don't say it that way. I said, I see him as a survivor. I see him doing what he does to survive. I can't play bad unless I go, you know, I'm not going to do that. And he said, yeah, but I want you to do this, but I'm not going to do that. And then he directed me again that way. And I said, hey, get your act together because I'm not coming on the set. I'm walking off until I do what I want to do because this is me on camera. It's not you. And I got up and Alan came over and he said, and Michael came over and he said, we wondered how long you, it was going to be too, that you took that. And then um, uh, Loretta said, you know, he can't direct us. He can only direct you because we all know our characters. He's coming into a show that we've already set. So you're the only guy he can direct as the guest star. And I said, we ain't directing me because I ain't going to be playing bad guy as a bad guy. This is a guy who's a survivor, a guy from Philly, I think he was, had to survive in the army. He just saw the only way he could survive. And I can't play him bad. This, that's, I learned differently as an actor. So uh, we didn't get along terribly, but uh, it was, it was really, it was a fluke. And I got a chance to do a show I've always wanted to do. And it's a really great episode. And I, I like your take on the character making this survivor because he really feels that way. Like he doesn't feel like totally mustache comic book villain. Like you were saying, he feels like a real person. He's a real person. There are people like that out there that think it's, it's okay. The, and he was good. He visited the kid in the hospital and he brought him some bucks and whatever. It's, it was life in the war, you know, and, and he was just doing what he could to survive, to make a living. And I was also very happy to find out that you did two episodes of Three's Company, which I feel like I don't get to talk about enough on my podcast here. 
Uh, I love that show, and I love that you were on it. So uh, what is it like being on that side? I mean, that's kind of like the polar opposite of being on The Monkeys, right? Yes, absolutely. And you know, my wife was on the show, Victoria Carroll, and yep. we didn't know each other at the time. Oh, wow. And so she had guessed it, and I had guessed it. Uh, that was an interesting show. It was good for me to do because I was also, because I had trained in dance, and when they when I was doing first, I did the Maharaja, whatever that, that thing was I did. And they did the curly hair, et cetera. And uh, everybody was very, very nice. I'm sorry, but Suzanne Summers was not. I and mean, she really saw herself as a star. And she was not warm, not welcoming. I mean, it was, I, I guess it goes with the territory. When you become famous to that degree, you think, you know, nothing stinks. And she was really difficult. But it didn't affect my performance. Uh, I just, you know, it was just great fun to deceive her. And the second one, uh, because I was a dancer, they hired me because I was an actor and a dancer. And uh, I, when I look back, I look pretty good in tights. So, uh, and I got to show my tattoo. So it was, uh, it was that was great fun. And uh, that was that was cool. It was nice of them to bring me back. In those days, it was, I was very lucky because again, just. You walked in, you did the role, and nobody said, can you audition? They just knew you were an actor that could handle it. And John Ritter is such a genius as well. I mean, it's unfortunately lost him at such a young age, but like, what a what a talent he was. Talented, sweet guy, nice, very giving. It's very important when you're on a set to have somebody that is giving, that that work with you, that, that is kind, because you're the stranger. It's not as if you walk in a set and he goes, hey, welcome, because that isn't the way it is. It's like, uh, yeah, hi, how you doing? And that's my, he was, hey, Mike, hi, blah, blah, blah. So he was really sweet, really nice. That's awesome to hear. Now, I'd love to find out what put you on the road to becoming a voiceover actor. Well, uh, I was under contract at Universal Studios eventually, and um, I wound up doing the same thing over and over. And I wanted to be under contract desperately to a studio. Almost got under contract to MGM, almost. And they say I conflicted with another actor who was tall and skinny. And uh, and in terms of, interestingly enough, in terms of uh, um, MASH and the uh, Bob Newhart show, I auditioned for both those shows, for the dentist and Bob Newhart and for the, um, not Mike Farrell role, the other role on the, um, on the uh, on MASH, the other character, I forgot the other act- actor's name. And I saw his, I saw his screen test and I went, oh, I can do this, I'm not better than that. And I went up there and when I got a call back from the agent, they said, they really want you on both shows. Which one do you want? And I want to do a comedy desperately. So I said, I'd love to do the Bob Newhart show, but I also want to do MASH. Can I do both? And I said, greedy. I want, I want to do both of them. They said, well, they're going to get back to us. We'll talk about price and blah, blah, blah. Then he called me back. He said, didn't happen either way. I said, what happened? Well, Bob knew the fellow who he hired as the dentist. He had worked with him before. And uh, they thought he was too close to Alan Alder. Tall, dark-haired much too close, looking like Alan Alda. Not looking, but kind of like in the same type. So they went with the other guy, who eventually left the show and became a, a business manager because he was not interested in show business. Thank you, schmuck. So uh, I didn't, you know, lost out on both of those, both of those suckers. But the point is that, you know, I, you know doing, uh, doing those shows was always, a, always a, a treat. It was always a treat to work. But eventually... I said to the guys at uni, I said, you know, I'm doing the same thing over and over again. All they're doing is changing the blood to prevent botulism. You know, I keep getting killed in every segment or I'm some goofy, nothing really interesting, not a role I want to play. You know, I want to play a drag queen. Okay, is there anything happening for me to play a drag queen? And they finally offered me the role of a drag queen on a mystery. 
And but they wanted a real drag queen who I knew was a friend of mine, and they couldn't find him, Charlie. And they said, We're looking for Charlie. And I went, I know where he is. They said, Where is well, he's in San Francisco and he's in the golden cage or something. And I have his number. Oh my God, yeah, Charlie Pierce. And I went, Yeah, I know where he is. And he went, Oh, really? And I said, Yeah, I'll call him. I called. I said, Charlie, I'm giving you a role in a major television show. You owe me. And he came, he wound up doing it. But I would love to have done that. I would have been an ugly drag, but I would love to have done it. Uh, do you recall how that actually got you into the direction of voice acting? Yeah, I think eventually when I left Universal, I went with a, a young lady who I'd met, a very funny woman named Joni Gerber, one of the top voice women in the business. Really sensational. Gary Owens I used to use her all the time. She was uh, the story lady. She was brilliant. And uh, we went together and she said, Mikey, you have all these characters inside of you. You have all these, you do all these wonderful characters. Don't, you know, on camera's not going to do it for you. You work, but you're not going to do what you want to do. You're not going to play what you want to play. So I put together a tape. She brought it to his agency, brought it to her agency. And uh, Bud Davis, who was the agent at the time, said, yeah, I think he's got something. And they sent me out. And uh, the rest for me is not, <laughs> nothing to do with the world. The rest for me is history. And just started to connect. And then eventually Hannah Barbera said, yeah, he can do all these things. Let's bring him in. And it was like a small group of people. And I wound up doing everything that they gave me. They just threw it at me and I was able to do it. So I guess it proved my worth. Now, being a voiceover actor, though, you kind of live a little bit in anonymity as opposed to if you're on screen and, you know, people will know your face, they'll recognize your face. In this case, it's all about your voice. Um, but was that a thing that really affected your decision in any way? The fact that, you know, you'd be attaining stardom in a different way as opposed to your face being what got you to stardom? It never occurred to me. The only thing that interfered with me was obscene phone calls because everybody knew it was me. So they, I say, hey, are you alone? I'll call you back later, Mike. <laughs> I also heard this like amazing story uh, about you and Mel Blanc. That was early on in your career. I'd love it if you could tell us that story too, because that was, uh, I just love hearing about Mel Blanc also. Again, a guy, I, I don't get to do enough shows like this, talking to folks involved in the animated industry. Um, I'd just love to hear about this Mel Blanc story. Well, Joni had worked with Mel Blanc a lot and with Mel Blanc, uh, his son is a swell guy, really super swell. What do I sound like? A swell guy. Um, <laughs> A-OK. And they brought me in, they brought me in and to the studio and I'm watching Mel work and he says, and Noel says, Mike, why don't you go in there with Mel? I mean, he, I mean, doesn't know what I can do. I said, oh, okay. And they're doing a commercial, for a radio commercial. And he says, uh, dad, you're going to be an East Indian and Mike, you're the young guy and dad, you're selling rugs and Mike, you're going to buy them in this leads to some product or something. So he says, okay, boy, chicken, he does his thing. And, and I do mine. I'm so excited. I'm working with Mel Blanc. I mean, I should have worn the pens. I mean, I'm ready to pee my pants. And then he, and, and Noel goes, dad, dad, that's not, that's not East Indian. That's just Indian, dad. You know, during an Indian, East Indian, not American Indian. He goes, okay, boy, chicken. And he goes ahead. He says, no, no, dad, dad, you're not to, Mike, do you do an East Indian? And I said, yeah, because I've been studying dialects like crazy. And I looked at Mel and I said, that okay? And he says, go, go, boy, chick. You'll be the Indian and I'll be the buying from you. And I went, okay. So, you know, I did the whole thing with that selling the rug, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and he went, great. And he did finish it. And I came home and I went, I took a job from Mel Blank. I came home, I, I got a job that Mel Blank couldn't do. The only thing in the world he couldn't do because he does everything. Thank God they didn't ask me to sing. I mean, it was just sensational. And we became friends 
after that when we did speed buggy. That's when we became buddies. When he, if you become buddies with Mel, because Mel was really insulating, he just he did his thing. But he was a sweet guy, and uh, we did speed buggy for I guess a year, two years, I don't recall. And that was, you know, that segment, you know, that funny segment of speed buggy. I do, but if you want to tell us, please go ahead. No, no, no. You, you, if you know it already, it's no big deal. For my, for my audience who might not know about it, let's say. Well, you have a, a visiting guest every week. You have a bad guy every week. And I was the young lead, you know, the young, young nice guy. And Mel was his fabulous car that he used to do all the time in the Jack Benny show. And the car was this. Make all these noises before you go. And take off. So I'm sitting next to him the first day of shooting, first day of um, uh, taping. And we start, I said, what do we do now, Speed Buggy? Oh, we're in trouble. And he goes, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, Buzz. I'm, 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 and he runs across and I'm soaking wet. I mean, he spit all over me. He does, he's by himself. It's like, this is where he is. And this is where the script is. And there's nobody else. He reacts with you. But that's it. So I thought, well, I can't do this for a whole season. So the next week, Alan Opperheimer was the bad guy. He was the guest. I said, Alan, I'm going to introduce you to Mel. He went, oh, oh, wow. Thank you, Michael. So I said, Mel, Alan Oppenheimer. And they go, hi. And he says, hi. He said, nice to meet you. I said, since you're the bad guy, you'll sit next to him, Al, because you have a lot of stuff with him directly. And I'll sit on the other side of you. He said, really? And I said, yes. Oh, thank you. And he sat, I mean, he sat on these tall seats before the booth, in front of the booth. So Mel is sitting there. He's got a script in front of him on his uh, music stand. And we got my script. And, and we got Alan and then me and then the rest of the cast. And, uh, and at one point, Alan says something. I don't know what it is. Or I say something. At which point, Mel goes, it's okay, Buzzy. I'm a... And comes back. And I see Alan go... And he looks at his sleeve and he's sopping wet. <laughs> and he turns around to look at me and I'm just looking at my script. I won't look at him. And I feel his eyes on me. And then and all this now is Mel turn again. And Mel goes, <laughs> once again, and, something, and I see Al go like that. And now Al is leaning into me and the seats are tall seats. So his seat is tipped and my seat is tipped. And then the next person's seat is tipped. All of us are tipped like this because he's trying to get away from Mel without Mel seeing that he wants to get away from him. And it was so great. He was sopping wet. And he looked for me during the break. And I ran outside, outside behind Hannah Barber because I didn't want to go to the bathroom during the break because I, I knew Alan was going to corner me and tell me to sit next to Mel. I know he was pissed. It was really funny. But he was, I mean, he was, I went, when, when, when Mel did that, I mean, even he went, I mean, you really could feel it on your face and your shoulder. It was great. It was really fun. Great time. Yeah, I know that we're talking about Mel Blank and Alan Oppenheimer, but I'm really just imagining Speed Buggy chasing after Skeletor right now. That's just my visual in my head. That's it, right? Yes. That's, yeah. Duke and Skeletor. <laughs> even better. Stuke riding in Speed Buggy. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. 
ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces, like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Worf, Barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand-painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hey, I'm Licia Nav, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row, and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. We do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% 100% tax deductible, and if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain... Sonia Gomez, signing off. We now return to Trek Untold. You're a guy who's done hundreds of different voices, and they're all usually different in some way or another. So how do you find the voices for your characters? What's your process to go through to create a character? Well, I teach voice animation. So if anybody wants to know how to create a character, even if you're not going to go into the business, but you want to be able to read to your kids at night or do something on a phone or play, I'm on YouTube and it's Michael Bell voice animation class and it's free. And you just type in Michael Bell voice animation class. You'll see me with a big pink background and I'm teaching five youngsters from the groundlings, which is a marvelous improv group in Los Angeles that my wife was one of the co-founders and they all are learning because they don't do voices. So I'm training them how to create a character vocally. They can do it visually, but can you do that vocally? And, um, and it's sort of a, a, a preference, like at the beginning of how to do that. You know, I I teach voice animation, and uh, uh, I teach them plagiarize, don't shade your eyes. That's why God made your eyes, plagiarize. So if there are actors that have a certain quality, uh, imitate them. Whether it's Rod Steiger, um, um, Marlon Brando, 
uh, whomever, you know, um, um, there, there are actors that have qualities. It's okay to do those qualities. It's okay to play those characters because there are a lot of people that imitated Mel all during their life. And sadly, when Mel passed, boom, they jumped in. And when the the marvelous actor that did Winnie the Pooh passed away, you know, he just spoke like Winnie did all that wonderful thing. Uh, Cummings jumped right in because he'd been doing it. He'd been imitating for a long period of time. And then you develop your own characters di- through dialects, through vocal range, through grandma, grandpa, friends that have a strange laugh. Some friends have strange laughs. They have strange phrasing. People have a strange phrasing. Um, you watch Kristen Wiig, that wonderful phrasing when she goes, oh, I didn't think that you were the person that I wanted to say. It's so funny. She got that from somebody. You know, she there was somebody that did that. And the people that, uh, uh, you know, have a back voice. You know, you know, there are people that have back voices, so you just train yourself to have a back voice. So it's a whole different character. And then there's dialects. You know, then there's a, a higher voice if you're playing an old person, etc., or English person, whatever. Um, yeah, there's, you just work at it. Listen, practice. Uh, watch Jerry Springer. And you get a lot of great characters of Jerry Springer, Tony. I'm telling you. And uh, I actually did just finish watching that masterclass before we did this interview. In fact, all well, 90 minutes of it. And uh, for folks out there who want to watch it, we're going to have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, I was actually planning on asking about this a little bit later, Michael, but I mean, you got that one video and then there's also a video with you and your wife afterwards. Are there plans for more videos? Cause that was done like 2017. I'd love there to be, you know, some additions to that class. I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to do that. It's uh it's enervating. It really takes a chunk out of you and you really need to set up. I mean, I, we, I paid through the nose for a good camera crew for lights, action, sound, studio. I don't want to do it in my house. You know, I probably could nowadays, I probably because I have a whisper booth. I could probably do it in the whisper booth. But, uh, you know, I, I teach by Zoom. Every now and then I'll have a class. I'll run a class and people will contact me from all over the United States. And, uh, and I'll teach a class for about uh, five weeks. And, um, but I won't teach less than, than 10 people. It has, to, it has to be 10 people to make it pay for me, A, and for me to be able to have enough scripts to work with you because I want to, you know, I have all the scripts available for them. But it's, it is enervating. And it commits me to be there once a day, once one day a week. I'm a pain in the ass. I've gotten so, so comfortable after all these years of pumping out. So every now and then a job pops up and I'm glad to get it. But it's not like the old days, which is fine with me. I mean, I will have to say it's intimidating talking to Michael Bell to begin with, but then knowing that he does these voiceover classes, like he's going to be probably critiquing the way I talk and the way I sound. I'm just all like extra nervous. So I'm doing my best. I'm trying to be on good behavior, trying to enunciate. Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll, you'll do a report at the end for me. But um, you know, I don't, <laughs> no, you're doing good. You're doing well. I can hear you. You're clear. I'm not hearing a lot of, I'm not hearing a lot of likes. Uh, and I break everybody down when they say didn't, couldn't, wouldn't, shouldn't. There's no such thing. It's didn't, couldn't, wouldn't, shouldn't. I don't know where everybody got didn't, wouldn't, he didn't do it. That nobody talks. It's crazy. It's not even written like that. It's didn't. D-I-D and apostrophe T. And the, the word the becomes the when followed by, when a vowel is followed. So it becomes the actor, the opening, uh, the understudy, the, 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 the becomes the when it's followed by a U or an O, et cetera. People are going, the actor. The opening, the other day, the uh, the uh, it, it doesn't follow. That's a result of TV. That's a result of sports figures. 
who talk like that, who just learned to to speak, to try to speak in front of camera, the opening, and they read like that. And it's sort of caught off. Even politicians, I hear politicians do it. So it's a loss of the use of the English language. It's abrogating. So what are you going to do? But I really pointed out to my to my students, don't want to hear it. No, I mean, I feel like we're going on this tangent now. So I got to tell you, like, one of the things that I hate right now that's very popular is people say would of instead of would have. Would have. I would have. Yeah, I would have done that. Yeah. Hate that. Would have. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I get and, and also starting a sentence with I mean, what do you mean? You mean you never said anything. I asked you a question. You go. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, no, you, you can't say I mean, because I didn't ask you. It, it, there wasn't there wasn't a question about what that was so that you have to explain it. You just start. Start your answer. I went to not. I mean, I went to the store. No, I don't want to hear I mean. Where is all this coming from? Well, I know where it's coming from. Again, it's coming from people who've learned the language because they're now stars or celebrities and they're on camera or they're sports figures and they have to and they have to speak and so they're uncomfortable. I would prefer an uh. I prefer a wait and go, um what I'm saying is fine, instead of I mean, you know, like. It drives me crazy, but I drive crazy easy. I'm easily driven crazy now. Well, like I mean, um, oh wait, no, let me not do that. Let me not do that. Um, <laughs> I, but I don't want to be a, a rude guy here either. But you know, this is kind of my show. I got to be a little bit prodding and poking of you. Oh. Uh, but I'm not going to put you on the spot. But I'm curious, what is the voice that you get asked by fans to do the most when you go to conventions? You know, it's probably most would be Duke, which is me. Prowl, which is me. Which is easy, you know, it's because it's me. Um, occasionally, Chucky's dad chairs, you know, with the back voice of here, the nasal thing, you know, chairs. Were there any characters that you, let's say, connected with emotionally right off the bat, or someone, some character that you felt was really like very much like real life Michael Bell? And I don't just mean like the voice, but the personality, someone that just felt like they were a mirror or, or some part of you. I'm not sure there was anybody like that, to be honest with you, Matthew. I don't, I can't think of anybody like that because I'm so bizarre. I've never got to read a character that had a really wacky sense of humor that was crazy. Maybe Cracker Jack. But uh, for the most part, um, no. In, in terms of favorite characters, which I'm always asked about, which hard, they're all my children. Um, I'd have to say um, Chucky's dad, Chaz, Grandpa Boris from Rugrats. And uh, Opus from Wish for Wings That Work. I think those are my three faves. I'm so glad you mentioned those three in particular, too, because I, I feel like I'm probably the biggest Opus fan out there. But uh, just you know, now knowing that it's you who is Chaz, who's Uncle Boris, like not knowing much about you before this interview, really, I felt like those were the voices that would have been the most like Michael Bell, the most inside him, because you just said that these are your, all your children. So uh, it leads me to my next question, which would be, how connected do you feel to these characters once you do the voices and how protective are you of them? Because I know you've done Lance from Voltron a few times. You've reprised other characters on different times. Even just recently, you did Quacker Jack again and someone else probably could have done those roles, but you were doing them again. So are you protective of them or is it just a job to you? What is that process like for you? I feel very, very protective. I'm especially protective about the roles that really demanded I change my voice and I really get into the character without getting actory. You know, um, so I found it very disturbing. And I think everybody knows it at this point when they replaced me on Rugrats recently. 
I, I was very angry uh, and frustrated and hurt that I got replaced when, in fact, I wrote to the producers and said, you know, guys, uh, my ass has dropped, but my voice is pretty much the same. So uh, I think it's unfair, but they, but they, you know, they, um, I think it was a Paramount, whatever, they wanted to go with superstars. So they went with the celebrities, TV celebrities. And then recently, uh, Henry Winkler took over for Grandpa Boris, which I found disturbing. I know Henry's a sweet guy. What I don't like is, will they use my character's voice that I created? Nobody told me what they wanted. They said, okay, what do you think, Mike? And they gave me Chucky's dad, Chaz. And I said, let me hear Christine, who at that point was Chucky. And when she, when I heard her go, okay, dad, you know, whatever. And I went, okay, I've been doing the same thing because he will have inherited my nasal problem, you know, but had the attitude. So that's how I came up with that. Grandpa Boris is a pull from my grandmother and my grandfather from both my mother and my father's side. You know, they came from the old country and they had that sound. They talk like that. Both of them, they didn't know each other, but they talk like this, right? That was me. And then they gave Tony Hale my voice to copy as Chaz. And I hated that. I really hated that. The other actor, I don't know his name, is also a wonderful actor from the, I don't know what he's doing as Drew. I have no idea what he's doing as Drew. Maybe his own voice or whatever. I have no idea. And then, of course, you get the Smurfs, the movies. They didn't attempt to do my voice as, as Grouchy, or they didn't do Handy that I know of, or Lazy that I know of. Um, but they didn't attempt to do that. So I don't feel so bad. You know, they've just, you know, they just use whatever, whatever they, they think they use their own voices for the characters that I, that I played in, in the TV show. I don't understand. I don't understand why they do that. I understand they want to take those actors. The producers want to take those actors to lunch. I get that. They want to mingle. They want to rub shoulders with them. But the kids don't, the kids don't need that. They don't need to know they're superstars that are playing those voices. They, they didn't, nobody knew who I was. It's just they saw jazz and that was jazz or Grandpa Boris or whatever. So, yeah, and all the way around about to the question, very, uh, very much uh, interested in holding on to those characters, interested in protective, very protective of them. But there's nothing I can do. They're not mine. Belongs to the company. So. And not to besmirch the good name of Henry Winkler, because I think I can speak for everybody who's listening and for both of us in this conversation. We've got a lot of respect for what he does, but... I feel like Henry Winkler as a voice actor, his range is going to probably be Henry Winkler and then Henry Winkler with a little bit of an accent, maybe. Uh, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this too, because I feel like Disney played a big part in kind of changing the voiceover scene, especially in the 90s when they start bringing in all the celebrities to do like The Lion King and all the, all the other big Disney movies. So from your perspective, how did that affect your business once the, the mainstream celebs started invading, if you will? Um, like any business, it's like computers affected the business of people who worked for a living and did the handwork, and also they were replaced by computers. I'm I was replaced by celebrities. A lot of us, many of us, were replaced by celebrities, uh, which was disturbing because this was our only job. You know, um, I I joked about it. I said years ago they came to me and said they wanted me to do a star in a movie called Born on the Fourth of Day of July, and I said, Well, give it to Tom Cruise. It's what he does. You know, everybody breaks up. I said, you know, I would never, I, 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 this is what I do. So why would you have a celebrity? They replaced us on the plant, I was a Captain Planet or whatever it was. And they replaced us. I was a regular character on Captain Planet. And they then they brought in 
a very famous actor to play my role after I'd recorded it. And I thought that's, and then of course, then they brought in Whoopi Goldberg to replace another one of our local actresses to do that. And they brought in Tom Cruise to replace somebody else. And they couldn't be there every week the way we could. But they didn't come back to us. Then they went to two other people. And I found it, that's the business. There's no, there's really no loyalty is the word I'm looking for. There's really no major loyalty, except for Spielberg, bless his heart. He brought everybody back from Animaniacs. He brought back Rob and, and Jess, and he brought back the people and Frank that did the original. And Tress McNeil, why would you change them? They're still alive. They're still able to, they're not, they're not pushing up daisies. Bring them back. They're wonderful. And he did. But not the smart, not the uh, Rugrats people. They said, screw you. So there you go. I mean, the studios might not have any loyalty, but I know speaking for myself, I think the fans clearly do. And I can tell you how disturbed I am when I hear, you know, a cartoon. If I'm watching even G.I. Joe and it's got Duke somewhere, it's made one of the newer G.I. Joe shows and it's got a Duke character. I'm going to always be judging it by whether or not it sounds like Michael Bell and has the Michael Bell isms, if you will. So, uh, you know, I think the fans definitely can appreciate it, which is who knew that would be a thing, right? 20 years later. Well, look, look at Transformers. I mean, they did the movies. They they with the creatures they didn't use us i think eventually they used frank eventually used frank and of course yep. uh, uh somebody else um, uh peter you calling yeah he use frank but for the most part uh they you know i in fact i called one of the producers when they were just planning to do the first live action and i said i heard you on the radio i managed to get through to him i heard you on the radio and you said when they asked you if you'd be using some of the original voices and you said yes so this is Michael Bell. And so he answered the phone. He said, hey, how you doing, Michael? I am such a fan. I've listened to the show, but I've watched the show so many times. This is a thrill talking to you. I said, yeah, this is a pleasure talking to you. I'm wondering if you're going to be using Prowl because I'm available or any of the other characters that I do for Transformers. He said, actually, we won't be. Your characters will not be in the show. I said, damn. And I said, well, hopefully you'll be using some of the other actors like Dan Gilderson for, uh, for uh, um, Bumblebee. And some of the other characters, they're still around. We're still around. He said, I don't know. I'm, you know. So I can see they were going in a different direction. And I said, I have an idea. May I make a suggestion? We're all on camera actors at some point. Why don't you use us as extras and have us throughout the film, some old man on a bench going, what the hell is that? You know, whatever. And that would be me. And then somebody else is selling newspapers and somebody else running and is getting in his car. I said, Damn, look at that thing. And then, Chris, it would be all of us. You'd have all of us who did, you know, Sulu, all these people that would be on camera because we're used to it. Um, Jack Angel, rest his soul. And all these people would be, you know, we'd be, we'd be there. And they said, and he said, no. He said, you're going to need extras anyway. I'm pushing. You're going to need extras. You're going to need background performers. Why not use us? And then you have the list and the crowd and the audience was met, basically made up of fans who go, Whoa, oh my God, that's who that is. They'll come back a second time and a third time. He went, no, we're not going to do that. I said, okay, I think his name was Frank or whatever. Said, okay, we'll take care, have a good life. And that was it. Well, on a happier note, you know, we mentioned your wife earlier in this interview and we know that she has done a lot of VO as well. I'd love to hear what it's like having your wife work with you. I mean, did you guys ever get to do sessions side by side? We did something for a series, for a series called What a Mess. Yes, I, I used to watch that show. And they wanted two Afga Afghan hounds, but they wanted us to speak in Afghani. So we hired a dialect coach and we trained in Afghani with Afghani words. 
and we introduced the words during the course of the show. Everybody went, what was that? I said, it's Afghani for leave me alone. It's Afghani for I'm here, honey, whatever. They went, oh, my God. So, yeah, we got to play Afghan, Afghans together. And I think we did a Smurfs together. She put an evil witch on the globe, the orb, or whatever it was. It was sort of a sort of a thinly disguised about drugs. About it was very thinly, but it was nicely done. And she played the evil witch. Yeah, I mean that has to be the most fun house ever to live in because you got your wife doing voices, you're doing voices. I know your daughter also is performer. Uh, what did like growing up in the Bell household? Yeah, the Bell household. She does voices also. It's really funny. When we were when we were when she was a little kid, we would sit at the dinner table and say, "Okay, and we're going to do opera tonight's dinner is opera." And I go, "What would you like for dinner, Ashley?" She had this little tiny voice went, "I want French fries." And then we would, I and mean, it was crazy. It was in that city. I mean, we, yeah, we, we did. And she eventually got into voice. So, and of course, as you know, she got into producing and directing and starring in films. So that's uh, yeah, it's a. It, it conflicts sometimes, you know, with critics. All of us are critics, but uh, it seems to have worked. All right, and we're back. And Michael, it is now time to get into our Trek talk. And we got a lot to discuss here. You did three episodes of Trek, plus some of the video games. Um, so let's just start from the very beginning. And you were part of the very beginning of Star Trek The Next Generation. You were in the pilot and contract Farpoint, which, uh, again, I, I always like watching the episode again and again. It's such a different looking episode compared to the rest of the TNG series. Uh, you were Grappler Zorn, which is the weirdest name, I think, in Star Trek history to date. Uh, but let's take it from the beginning here. How did you get cast into this pilot? And did you actually know it was Star Trek when you were auditioning for it? Or was that kind of like a top secret thing? No, I knew it was Star Trek. And Corey Allen, rest his soul, uh, who I'd known years ago, I'd done a play for him. And we became friends over the years. Brought me in for it. Just to, He brought me in for the role of Q. And uh, who's the producer? Help me. Would it have been uh, Gene? Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry. So I'm in a room with, and I didn't recognize Gene Roddenberry. And I'm with Corey and Gene, and they have me read for Q. And then they start to whisper among themselves. And I thought, oh, okay, I didn't get it. Um, then he says, uh, here's here's the role of Grappler Zone. I want you to take this outside and read it for a while when you're ready to come back in. I said, okay. And Grappler's a big role. I thought, oh, they're not giving me an extra. I mean, not a little tiny role. Because so I came back in and I read it. And because Grappler was described as having long gray hair, et cetera, I read him as an old guy. You know, a little bit, a little bit in this area over here. And they said, no, use your own voice. I said, my own voice. I sound like nothing important in my body has dropped yet. And I said, here's this long-haired old guy who looks like Betty Davis. And he went, no, no, use your own voice. I said, okay. So I did it. He went, all right, that's it. That's good. You got it. I went, seriously? And I said, yeah. And Gene says, do you know that you worked for me before? And I went, what did I do? He said, you did Along Came Bronson with Michael Parks. And I went, you guest starred on my pilot. I went, and you're hiring me again anyway? And he said, yes, it's okay. It all worked out. I said, because that was not, that was, that, that didn't work out well. And he said, no, no, no. It was, and he laughed and he said, I get it. I know what happened. It's cool. I went, okay, so thank you. Thank you for not holding the grudge. And then I got brought the resort. And worked on a show that I wanted to do for the longest time. It wasn't the original, but it was new and it was great. And I'm working. Patrick was sensational. All the young cast was so good, so cool, so nice. It was all new for them, all exciting. And we've maintained this friendship over the years. Now, not, we're not, we don't call each other, but we see each other in conventions. 
but I don't see them on Star Trek conventions because I've never been invited to a Star Trek convention on a, on a Star Trek convention specifically for Star Trek. Uh, I just see them on conventions where they happen to be. Yeah, they'll come over to the table and see four or five of them, Michael Dorn, and then, uh, uh, you know, come over and then say, I don't grapple. And all the people standing around me going, oh, my God. You get so excited. It's really funny. Yeah, we got to find a way to get you at a Star Trek convention. That's a crime. You haven't been able to do any yet. And my, I have a great agent. And I mean, I'm working like crazy next year. If I survive, if, if, uh, if I survive COVID, I'm working like crazy next year. I'm going to all different places, but none of them are Star Trek conventions. He said, I've tried. I've tried. I've called Vegas. I've called the different Star Trek conventions. They're just not interested. So I said, but I don't understand. I did the pilot. You know, what's, what have I got, scabies? What, what are they concerned about? Well, all right, that's it. So be it. So basically right now, for everybody who's watching or listening to Trek Untold, we need everybody to start a letter writing campaign to Creation Entertainment. Let's get Michael Bell in 2022 in Vegas. Okay. Okay. Let's do it, guys. Cool. So one of the first scenes we see you in is a scene with Jonathan Frakes. And this wasn't his first day on set, but it was basically probably his first week. It's his first time wearing the uniform. It's his first time on that set in general. Uh, what do you remember about a very young Jonathan Frakes on that day? And how many apples did he bite into? It's just, uh, yeah, I think two or three. That was it. I think only did a couple of takes. He was cool. You know, he just, he was new boy. I think he became a director since then. But he was new boy in town. And all of them were. Um, what's his name? Um, who, uh, God, my mind is going. Um, the robot. Uh, Brent Spiner? Yeah, Brent. Brent, new for Brent. New for, you know, they may have worked before, but I mean, this was a whole new bag for them. Everybody did their job. They were all professionals. Nobody, you know, they were, it was so new that no one was going to put up a fuss about anything at that point in their career. I know Brent, after about five days of working or four days of working, he said, God, this is tiring getting this makeup every single day. I said, I'll trade you. Do you have any idea where this is going? And he said, what? And I said, I'll trade you. I'll trade you in a second. You want to do my role? You can do my role. I'll do your role. Because your role will last for several years and you'll be a millionaire. So I'll trade with you. Okay, so quit fussing. I don't want to hear it. He went, right. You know, because I knew. You know, I've been around too long. And know this is a hit. This is going to be a smash hit. And they, when they did the last show, uh, I ran into, I was working on a, on a, on a some commercial in L.A. And Patrick happened to be in there doing another commercial. And uh, I walked over and I said, hey, Patrick. And he said, Michael, how are you? And we talked. And he said, I have to tell you. I tried to get Groppler in the last segment. I said, let's bring Groppler back for the last segment, but they weren't having any. I said, it's okay. I got a Deep Space Nine out of it, a couple of Deep Space Nines. So that's cool. But I appreciate it. Thank you. He was very sweet. Very sweet man. And that's very cool that you had this kind of sixth sense that this show is going to be successful. Since that was going to be another question I asked was, did you think this show is going to actually have legs or would it just have the same fate as its predecessor? Please. It was going to have locomotion. It was going to have locomotive legs. It was going to have marble legs. It was going to have Legs that could move fast. I mean, I knew where this was going. I knew this was going to be huge. I kept hoping, oh, bring back Groppler. No, they brought back Q, the one I didn't get. But <laughs> bring back Groppler. Bring him back. So, uh, no, so be it. But I do have uh, I do have the nose that I wore as, as a Bajoran in Deep Space Nine, which one of these days I'm going to sell. <laughs> Very nice. And, you know, you did get to do a scene basically with the entire cast, which was basically probably the first time they had everybody on the bridge all together, and that included... John Delancey, who ultimately would play Q. Uh, right. I'd love to actually hear if you remember anything about that that day doing that shoot where it's the entire cast on the bridge. Uh, what did you think about seeing that set for the very first time? And uh, did you tell John Delancey you were up for that role too? I'm curious to hear if you knew that. 
the set was extraordinary. I was, I was so, you know, I've done enough television at that point, but it was always shoot them up, bang them up, getting killed, falling over, whatever it was, except for one or two comedies. But that was a treat to be on that set. And, uh, and I didn't know John, but I watched everybody work. And I think at one point when the creature lifts me up and I'm in midair struggling, and the invisible creature, the stunt, I had a st- my own stuntman who was a buddy of mine. So he had the same outfit. And he said, you want me to do it? And I said, no, oh, it's half the fun. I'm going to do it. He said, okay. So he went over to the guy who did the pulleys and he said, I just want to make sure, let me check the pulleys. I want to make sure, and I want a mattress underneath Michael because we're lifting him about five or six feet in the air and I'm flat out like this, I'm horizontal. So they said, we, I want to, and the guy said, he doesn't need a mattress. Trust me, I know my work. And he said, I do trust you, but I want Michael to have a mattress. And it said, well, that'll take time. He said, I want a mattress. So he got pissed. The guy said, they put a mattress down there for me. And they hooked me up to the wires. You know, they get all these things under your clothes and they've gotten wires. And I start screaming and I'm struggling. And he goes, and they go, okay, I know, action. And I go, ah, and, all stuff. and all of a sudden I hear, and I'm falling. And I just landed on the mattress, but flat like this. No preparation. Thankfully, my head wasn't back because it could have snapped my neck. I just lay like this. And I didn't move. And I stayed perfectly still. And then I heard people heard voice going, Mike? Mike, you okay? Then the producer, I hear the producer's Barry come up. Mike? Hey, Mike? And I hear somebody say, direct comes always, Michael, Michael, you're right. I'm like this. And I went, I see a series in my future. <laughs> Everyone, oh shit! Oh my god! I said this place is going to be a garage in the morning. I said, I got up and I said, all right, let's go. Come on! And I looked at uh, um, my son and I said, thank you, thank you very much for. And the guy was so embarrassed. The other guy set me up. He said, can we do it again with cable? Can we have some cable? I don't care if they see them. Erase them later, but let's make sure that I'm up there. So that's my my big. Uh, Almost, almost died story. Earned your hazard pay that day. Yeah, <laughs> they, but they did. They gave me uh, Deep Space Nine after that. Yeah, they did. Yeah, you were in Deep Space Nine, which was in the uh, season two opener, Homecoming, or the Homecoming actually is what it was. Uh, mm-hmm. And you got to work side by side with uh, George Richard Bamer also, who I'd, I'd love to hear. What, what was it like working with him? He's so shy and so he was very distant. And I did everything I could to chat with him because I wanted to know everything there was to know about West Side Story. I wanted. I wanted all that information because, you know, it's just, he's just, he's, he's, he's historic at that point, obviously. Uh, and he was very closed. He was pleasant, but closed. It was really interesting. And he was also a good artist. So I had him draw something for me, which I sent to a friend. Um, and that was it. And that was, that was all. But it, and it was hot out there. It was really hard, hard location in the hot sun, the desert, a lot of makeup on. Yeah, that was a Soledad Canyon in Los Angeles. Wow, it was deadly. It was really deadly. I've heard stories about that area before and how folks were, like, at similar place, actually, might have been a similar place, not quite that area, but we've heard stories about folks doing the shoots in the deserts of LA, which is a weird thing to say. Uh, But yeah, it's been so hot, so arid, so dry that folks are passing out. Uh, Yeah, I got to hear, there must be some horror stories about that shoot. Well, you know, LA is a desert. I mean, California is a desert when you think about it, for the most part. So, yeah, and I kept thinking my nose is going to fall off. Because I have this Bajoran scalloped nose, I think it's just 
But at one point, I'll be doing things, you know, boing and stick up. But it all hung together and we did it. And then after that, I, I think I did a, a creature, some creature uh, for another Deep Space Nine. that had inflatable glands or something. Yeah, that was the Zeppelin. But I actually wanted to ask you about the Bajoran outfit, which, by the way, I've never heard anybody refer to the nose as scalped. I love that description of it. Uh, now I just can't stop thinking of scalped potatoes on the nose. But yeah, uh, yeah was that your first time doing prosthetics for a role in, in Deep Space Nine? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So what do you think of the process? That probably wasn't too much of an intensive process as opposed to uh, your next one, right? Well, no, the next one was really intense. Mike uh, came over, the the, the uh, makeup guy came over and he said, uh, uh, we're going to pour this liquid over your face. It's going to be a whole mold. We've got the straw in your mouth and the straw in your nose so you can breathe. If you are concerned about it, let me know now because they'd have to they would take the role away because they needed to have that creature i said i'm good i'm good i don't suffer from that kind of thing i do actually but i said i don't and he poured it over me and he had all this glunk and and i can and i can hear my voice going and he said you okay and i went he said um can you breathe and finally, they peeled it off. It was so good to get it off. And I said, has did anybody ever get upset with those? He said, oh, yeah. We had one actor and we had to do one of those things. And right in the middle, he said, I can't. I got to get it. He started to rip it off and he tore it off. And we had to give it to another actor because he wouldn't wear it. He couldn't stand it. We've heard stories like that before from folks. So, so far, luckily, everybody who I've talked to on the show did survive it. But we've heard similar stories where folks had a role and ended up being scrapped because the person originally slated to do it couldn't handle the process. Because it's a rough process. Process is, it's, you're, it's like you're smothering because everything is over and it's tight and it's, it hardens over a period of time, but still it takes time. And you got to breathe through, your, through that straw, through your nose and through your mouth. I remember through my nose, I think it was mostly my mouth. I don't think it was my nose, but it was my mouth anyway. Certainly breathing through that. And that straw fell off. I'd be in deep shit. And the funny thing about it was they also gave me uh, lifts on my shoes, about six or seven inch lifts on my shoes. And uh, this whole big creature, and I couldn't take the makeup off when I went to lunch. So I'm at Paramount Studios, clumping down Paramount Studios to get to the commissary. It was They should have filmed the commissary because it was really good with all these creatures from different shows. And, I, and I'm walking down there and suddenly I hear, Daddy? And I turn around and my wife and daughter, who are guests, I forgot that we got them a pass with guests. I thought they would come on the set. And I turn around and I look and it's my daughter. And I'm in full drag, full monster drag with these giant shit. How, I mean, you, how would you know it was me? You've seen the photo. It's impossible. And he goes, she goes, Daddy. And Victoria laughs and she says, she knows, she knows her father. She knows how her father walks. So very funny. Very funny. That's, that's like a real Boris Karloff moment right there. Yes, it truly was. Absolutely. It was so great. But that was fun. And then, of course, uh, while I'm doing the scene, there's a tube attached to my neck that goes under my pants, that goes under, goes down through my pants, et cetera. And Mike, the makeup guy at the other end, is blowing into it when I start getting angry. So this thing begins to flare and go down and go up and down while I'm talking. I wasn't aware of it. I'd never seen it, but I've never seen it, by the way. And it goes up and down, and, and he's going. <laughs> and we finish the scene, and uh, Corey goes, okay, is that a take? And he went, yeah, that's a take. And I turn and I said, Mike, best blowjob I ever had. <laughs> he said, I knew you. I knew, I knew you were going to say something. 
I was waiting for you to say something. Good night, America. That's our blackout joke. We're done. <laughs> blackout joke. Right, okay. We can't top that, but uh, we do have to keep going because I do have a few other questions for you. Uh, and you know, I, we, we didn't really talk too much about the first DS9 appearance, other than it being really, really hot. But uh, do you recall working much with any of the actors? You know, we mentioned George, uh, but you also did the scene with uh, Nana Visitor, who was Kira, uh, Colmini, who was O'Brien, and uh, John Fleck was also there that day. He's another guy who we've talked to on the show. He was the Cardassian who gets beat up by Nana Visitor. Uh, do you recall working that day with any of those folks? I honestly, I got to be honest with you, I don't. I can remember breakfast, but that's about it. Well, what do you, you have know, for breakfast that day? That's important to know, too. That's exactly. No, I have no clue. I have no clue. I, you talk about names. You know, it's really bad for me. I'm really, I've always been bad. It has not served me well. Trust me. <laughs> when people have come over who's directed me in a show, I said, wow, that was a great show. Wasn't it? I go, yeah, you were wonderful. I'd be, who is this? You directed me in the show the week before. <laughs> Shows you what a selfish clot I was. <laughs> well, you know, we're talking also about your other DS9 appearance, which we didn't mention the name of. That was the Maquis. That was in part two of the Maquis. And your scene is actually not with anybody else. Your scene is basically done where you're an alien speaking through a monitor. So you're yeah. doing this all by yourself here. And I know that's something you're probably used to doing. So my question is, at this point in your career, what did you prefer doing? I mean, did you like being in a room working with other actors? Or were you okay just being alone, solo with the director and doing your scene going home? Well, I'd rather work with other actors. Yeah, because you get you get you get things from other actors. You get senses. You you it's a bounce. It's like playing basketball. Who plays play basketball by yourself? Keep singing. It's a big deal. You want to work with somebody else. You want to test yourself. You want to you get something from them. You get the, um, you get a feeling. You get emotions. Um, eventually, in my business, in terms of voiceover itself, uh, we find that uh, we worked a lot by ourselves. Unfortunately, and and you you really want to know what the other character. I usually say, can you play with the other characters said, so I can hear, so I know what my reaction was. And sometimes they don't have it available, so they do. You do it three times in a row with a different intent. And we mentioned at the top of the show also that you did some of the Star Trek video games, and I'm curious for those. Were you in the room with anybody, or were those solo? Solo. Solo. Okay, so you had. And now, was this mostly like ADR, or was this actual lines for characters you had to do? No, line, no, no. We were there. I was there. Yeah, not ADR. No, not at all. ADR was pretty much from Ultron. We did ADR, but not for this now. So did you have to do a lot of like techno babble when you're doing the video games? Or was it mostly kind of like screaming, reacting noises? Do you, do you recall much about that gig? Screaming, reacting, same thing in... Um, I did Star Wars, when I did VO in Star Wars. Screaming, reacting, except for, you know, Commander Willard. Um, there was a lot of characters I had to do, which is a lot of, I'm in hit. Oh, and all that good stuff. So something I heard Rob Paulson talk about in his podcast and in his book also, Voice Lessons, which is a great book, I recommend anybody out there who wants to get into VO should read. And anybody who loves Animaniac should also read. But, uh, you know, there's a part in his book where he talks about the day where he realized he couldn't be an on-screen performer and a voiceover performer at the same time. And I know at the time that you're still doing Star Trek, you are kind of doing a little bit back and forth, right? But was there a moment where you just decided, I have to choose one? I can only do one right now. I need to focus on that one. Did that happen to you? Not really. I I. I wanted to do continue to do voiceover because I, I could play all those wonderful characters. But if a really good role came my way, like Star Trek, I wasn't about to say no. Um, you know, but I had said no to other roles that came down, which were, you know, the same old thing I've been doing, um, a detective or someone from the CIA or whatever it is. If it was something that would advance my career or something that I 
could really sink my teeth into an interesting character, I would do. But if it was the same old, same old, I, I wasn't that interested. So I would stick to VO. And of course, for someone trying to make a living, I could do five or six shows, five or six shows in two days, whereas in, on camera, I'd have to work all week. And it was tiring. If you weren't a famous star, if you weren't the star of the show, it was a lot of pressure because you um, you wound up uh, uh, being, the, I usually referred to myself as the last shot of the day Jew was how I was certain referred to myself. I said, I got the last shot because I wasn't the handsome star. So it didn't make any difference that I looked like crap by the end of the day. In the beginning of the day, you're all beautiful and wonderful and made up and you're all prepared. And by the end of the day, you've been sitting in your honey wagon and going over your lines over and over and over. And finally, you get to the set. This, all the crew wants to go home. Director wants to go home. And you have three pages of dialogue. And it's deadly. And it's, and it's, it's no fun. It's, uh, you know, it's, look, it's not the worst job in the world. Let me put it that way. I mean, there's worse jobs than that. And we all know that. But for someone who is in the business, if you're in the business, it pays to be the star because you get such marvelous treatment and everybody really works hard to make it comfortable for you because you're going on camera and you've got to look great and you've got to be comfortable. If you're the guest star, you're zippity-doo-dah. Now, we mentioned earlier that you did these three roles, you did the Star Trek voices, and that you also originally were up for Q. Uh, but did you ever audition for any other roles in any different Star Trek shows that you can remember? No, actually, I didn't. Uh, they said they were going to bring me back as one of those big creatures, one of those big guys. What were they? There's a lot of big guys. Uh, <laughs> one of the soldiers, one of the monsters, one of the soldiers looked like, they looked like gorillas. Maybe the Klingons or Cardassians, maybe. Cardassian. 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 Not Cardassian. They're, they're pretty Cardassian. monstrous too, though. They bring me back as a Cardassian. Right. And uh, they said, let's get Bella because he's big. But that never happened, which is fine, which is great. Now, we talked earlier about Mel Blanc. I know that you did a lot of work with William Hanna, Joseph Barbera, and you've worked with folks, like we mentioned, Gary Owens. Uh, you've worked with Don Messick, June Foray, Casey Kasem, uh, Henry Corden, Frank Welker, Rob Paulson, who I just mentioned. You've worked with basically so many legends, many of them who are still with us today, a lot who are not. Uh, but I'm curious if you remember or can recall something that you learned from any of those people that has stuck with you to this day that you still use, whether it be professionally or for life. Well, well, Frank and I were doing Space Ace. I was Space Ace. And uh, we had done we had done uh, snorks together. But for Space Ace, I was this kind of butch guy, you know, great character. And he did something in it where he had to speak underwater. And I had to speak underwater. We wound up underwater. So a uh, um, director said, Mike, um, okay, he talks underwater. I thought, oh, I can do this. Sure. So I grabbed some coffee. I went, and I had to get a little water here. And I went, okay. Let's start. You went, okay, all right. And the director kept saying, yeah, it's not clear, Mike. I said, no, I'll get it. Don't worry And I was really having a problem. And finally he said, Frank, why don't you do your underwater? Because Frank can do, you know, all those wonderful, crazy voices. So Frank goes, okay. Well, what do we do now? Oh, boy, we're really in trouble. And I turned around and said, Frank? Why didn't you tell me that that was the way to do it? You could have helped me, couldn't you? And he said, yeah, but it was so much fun watching you drown. That's horrible and funny at the same time. Yes. Yeah, so I thought, oh, oh, I'm going to kill you. 
So and uh, so then, of course, now one, one of the, it's just one of those little trick things I teach my students. And I've used it. I had to use it in a show once. Uh, besides that, I had another show which I once had to talk underwater, and I I wound up doing that. Uh, as far as acting goes, I'm not sure I learned from anybody else because I'm working with all pros, and I I felt that I was a pro, so I just did my job um, and listened to them do their job. And that's, uh, there was nothing to learn from that. I learned from engineers, um, you know, to be careful with the mic, to stand off to the side, uh, don't pop. If I was going to, if I was popping and if sometimes I would pop, you put your finger here so you don't pop. Just keep it clean, not on your mouth, but over here so you don't pop. And that's pretty much, and have a green apple before you do a spot because it clears your mouth. Well, nice. I never knew this was nature's pop filter. That's good to know. I'm going to try that out. It's a pop. Well, yeah, pop. just that work. I feel it actually. Yeah, it's it's blocking that P sound. Yeah, and it doesn't affect the P. Doesn't affect the P. <laughs> That's what Michael said, not me, folks. Uh, good night, America. <laughs> hey, I'm 83. I can get away with anything. <laughs> I, I am curious too. You mentioned the green apple trick. We've heard that one from a few other folks as well. But you know, your voice basically sounds the way I remember hearing it back in the 80s, watching cartoons. Uh, what have you done to preserve your voice? Um, I'm not sure I've done anything. I keep hoping that it's not going to change too much because I'm doing a, I do a series called Hearthstone for um, um, Blizzard. Uh, it's it's part of the uh, uh, World of Warcraft characters. And my voice changes, um, you know, I'm out of luck because it's a really, it's one of those kind of things that you, you do that. So it's, uh, I'm just careful. That's all. I try not to yell too much. I try not to scream at the dogs. I got, Three dogs and four cats. I try not to yell too much when they pee on my rug or vomit on the rug or pee on the rug or something. So that's the trick there. Just a lot less screaming. It's actually a pretty good, I mean, you know, random story. I know somebody who uh, opened up a martial arts gym and about six months after he opened it, his voice completely changed uh, once he started yelling at little kids. So I, I totally understand that. Absolutely. My voice almost changed when I did uh, Thunder the Barbarian. They brought me in as one of the barbarians. And, uh, Oh, it was wonderful! Through the whole thing, I thought by the end of the session, I was going to be dead. But I never said no. That's also an important lesson. I always did it, and I'd go home going, oh, oh get, me a, get me a lozenge. <laughs> get, get me some hot tea and some lemon. Yeah. So, Michael, what would you say would be the best day you ever had on a set and the worst day you ever had on a set? Worst day. Best day. Um... There were so many best days, it's hard to say, because it's not like I was doing an on-camera thing that was so wonderful <clears throat> that I can remember everybody being so sweet. Everybody was always good. Everybody was always cool. We, oh, it was always cool. It was always good. Yeah. They were all good. We had great fun. BJ, uh, Frank, myself, uh, Tress, and we all played like crazy. I think worst, I don't know if it's a worst day, but it most difficult, I think, was doing a film voice character voices for a film i had to do all the chimpanzees in a film a live action film called race to the moon or something like that i think james woods is the uh on-camera actor and so they ran all the animals for me all the chimps happy chimps sad chimps angry chimps chimps questioning and so they and because they couldn't get it obviously in the library so i had to wind up doing it I found out later they'd offered originally to Frank and he said, give it to Michael Bell. So I, I really owe him for that. I can't wait to see him so I can kick him in the knee. 
Michael, you're a guy who has worked on literally hundreds of things and you're still working today. Uh, and this is a question I like to ask folks who have just had such a long, illustrative career. Uh, what do you want or what do you see that your legacy will be? I, I, I don't see a legacy. I, you know, legacy is such an important word. It really is. I think I will, when the time comes that I, I, that I take my last bow, um, I'm hoping that fans will say to you, he was, he, like you say, he was part of my childhood. I'll miss him. Um, I hope they'll be kind in their, in their critique. Because, you know, some there are trolls out there. They go, well, you know, he's no Frank Welker or he's no this or he's no that. And it's a little unfair. Because when you, look at the, when you look at my body of work, you'd see that I've done a variation of so many things. You know, God knows I've done dogs. I've done cats. I've done uh, narwhals. I've done whales. I, you know, I, I just never featured that. I just basically played characters, actors, you know, characters, I should say, through acting. Um, and I'd like, I would like people to be, when they meet my daughter, I hope them to say, oh, I loved your dad. He was great. He was part of my childhood, et cetera. And to, uh, and to be kind. I don't know if there's any legacy involved. To be perfectly honest, it's not as if I'm Martin Luther King, forgive me, but I'm not. He's, you know, I would be nice. Also, my, um, my animal rescue stuff. I've done animal welfare for so many years. I'd like people to remember the fact and to be kind and to spay and neuter their dogs and cats for God's sakes. Which is also a very important lesson. Uh, something I've learned from Bob Barker over the years as well. Always make sure your pets are spayed and neutered. Spay and neuter your pets. Absolutely. I got, as I say, I'm, they're all rescues. All my guys are rescues. And I've had rescues all my life. So that's, I guess, as much as a legacy that is demanded. And that they remember me as Grandpa Boris and Chaz, not Henry Winkler and Tony Hale. I mean, just to go on my little personal tangent, I mean, I love watching the Rugrats movie that you did the voice of. The second one, I believe it was. It was first or second, I can't remember which one it was now, but uh, the one where it's basically about Chucky getting a new mom, essentially. Uh, that still is like one of the most, wow. That's. I have to tell you, when I was doing that, and uh, I think it was in the, it was, it was one of the series, one of the segments in the series, and it was from Mother's Day. And, uh, and he says, where's my mother? You know, I said, okay, check me out. You see that cloud? And I did a whole thing. And it was really beautifully done. And when I finished, and I knew that, and I was finished, I looked up, and everybody in the booth was crying. The producer, the directors, the, 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 the engineer, and everybody was doing this. And it was just, they said, okay, let's do a take two. Um, okay, and we did take two, same thing. And... Uh, that was that was a treat to be able to do. That's why I love doing the characters. It was so beautifully written, beautifully written show. I haven't seen the new one, obviously, but I, it was a beautifully written show. Well, I might be a bit biased, but uh, I'm always going to be an OG Regrets fan. And even just hearing you tell that story, I'm already getting a little tear in the eye. Uh, but yeah, no, and you've done some, such amazing work over the years. And you know, really, when, when people like me say that your voice is our childhood, I mean, it's not like a little tiny thing. It's really shaped how we view the world. I think. A lot of folks my age probably don't realize how important cartoons were in shaping how we look at things, how we hear things. And your voice is a part of really building up a lot of people's lives. So, you know, on behalf of everybody here, just thank you for what you've done and for all of your work, because you've done such amazing, beautiful work over the years, really, truly have. And it's really is an honor for me to be able to spend this much time with you, because um, when else am I going to have this chance? So thank you for everything you've done, and even just for gracing us today with this interview. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And this was good. It was a good interview because you asked me questions no one has ever asked me. Oh, that's what yeah. I love to hear. That's what the show's all about. And uh, I do got to ask you one more, Michael, because we got one more to wrap it up here today. Sure. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? 
What's the best thing? Well, to be part of such an iconic show is, is an enormous gift, is what it is. Because um, I've done so many. And luckily, there are other shows that are iconic. But this being what it is, there's always that association. So that when somebody says, um, Star Trek, I can say, I was part of that. That was part of my life that I did something that, that will go on forever. You know, you watch the old shows and you see that goes on forever. That I don't think it'll get to the point where somebody will say, well, who's that? Someone will always say, I know who that is. As opposed to a lot of actors that are still around, you get them long gone and you see their shows, but they would just happen to be in that show. They just happen to guest in that show. Nobody knows who they are. Really, not the, the new generation. I think the good thing about Star Trek is the generation will always know that I was in it. They'll somehow remember me on some level because it's. I think it'll be around. I think they'll always show the pilot. I think it'll always be an important piece of TV history, which will be great. That's that's exciting. Michael, again, thank you so much for being here. This really is like a true treat. Like when I say that, it's not just blowing smoke up your butt. Uh, it's it's the truth. It's not just Michael Westmore blowing smoke up your fins or your gills. Uh, it's <laughs> a real honest truth. Uh, this is so great to be able to talk to you and. Not really, your, your legacy, I know you're, you feel like maybe you're downplaying it a little bit, but I think your legacy is going to be much greater than you realize because you're the voice that you did will live forever. And that's the truth. And uh, again, just, I'm so amazed to be able to spend this time with you. So thank you so much for real. Uh, and I hope I get to see you at a convention sometime, and especially at a Star Trek convention. Well, I hope so. One of these, listen, get, if you, how, how many fans do you have that uh, listen to Trek Untold? Yeah, I think we usually get about a thousand a week now. A thousand a week. Okay. One, or a thousand alone writing a letter saying, hey, I want Michael to be in a Star Trek convention i never met him blah 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 that'd be cool i think the thousand's a pretty big number so let's make it happen folks let's make it happen okay uh, thank you guys and thank you for listening and thank you so much matthew super super interview uh, thank you and that was our chat with michael bell and of course once again please do check out his youtube video his master class on voiceover acting we're gonna have a link for it in the show notes so make sure you don't miss out on that one at all and who knows maybe if we watch that video enough times Michael might get up and give us a whole new series and continue teaching us more about voiceover acting. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold or pick up some merchandise from our Redbubble store. If you're looking for direct links for any of these things, links will be right in the show notes. If you'd like to book this week's guest for any convention appearances or autograph signings, head to celebworks.com. That's C-E-L-E-B-W-O-R-X.com. If you have any questions or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest, or discuss any sponsorship ideas with us, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Trek Untold and for continuing to support this show. I hope you'll come back next time to learn more stories about Star Trek and beyond. Until then, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and always remember... Fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.